everyone, welcome back to the show. As you know, I've been traveling the world to find the best flavor ice cream. Today we're in England with Hermione to find out if she has the best flavor ice cream. Hermione, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Michael. Well, I'm so happy to be here, especially to have you across the pond with us. Thank you. And I have a delicious flavor of ice cream. It's called the Big Ben Banana Blitz. Mm, that sounds delicious. It's a local favorite. Wow, okay. Can't wait to share it with you. Oh, thank you so much. Let's try this out. Mm, that is delicious. What wow, that's really good. I think it's really mm. good, but you know what? It's not the best. I want to keep on going on my adventure and try and find the best flavor ice cream in my other destinations. Right. I want to thank you so much. Okay. But everyone, tune in next week where I travel to another place to find the best flavor ice cream. Thank you so much. Bye. Hey everyone, good morning and welcome to the well here at STSA. Glad that you're joining us here today. We are in the middle of a series called Finding Your Flavor. And every time we do a series, usually a series about six weeks that we do, I like kind of in the middle of the series to recap where it is that we started just so we kind of gain our bearings. That way in case someone is just kind of tuning in today for the first time, kind of understand what we're talking about right here. We are not talking about ice cream, okay, even though that has been a beautiful theme and a beautiful something in our mind throughout this, this but we're not really talking about ice cream. We're talking about spiritual flavors because we started this series by agreeing on the following concept, that one size does not fit all. And that the reason that many of us kind of struggle spiritually is we were kind of led to believe that there's kind of like a one formula for spiritual success. And if you don't look and talk and pray exactly in this way, then you can't be spiritual. So a lot of us grew up thinking, you know what? I'll never be able to pray like my grandma who prays for like 18 hours a day. So, you know, I'm never going to be spiritual. I'll never want to teach Sunday school. And I thought that's the only way that you can be spiritual is teach Sunday school. I just won't like veggie burgers. It's just like not my thing. So can I actually be spiritual and not do these same things that everyone else? What we've been discovering here in this series is that we are as diverse spiritually as we are physically. And actually, I want to say, to be honest, that because I, I think the spiritual is even more the image of God than the physical. I want to say even more diverse. I want to say that there's no two people in this room that look the same, no two people in this room that have the exact same DNA, no two people in this room that have the same thumbprint. Well, I believe the same is true spiritually. I don't think there's any two people that have the same spiritual thumbprint. I don't think there's any two people that look exactly the same spiritually. And what we're discussing in this series is discovering how we connect and relate with God most naturally. How each one of us, that's what we're talking about, the idea of flavors that trying to get everyone to relate to God the same way spiritually is like trying to get everyone to agree on the same best flavor of ice cream. For me, where I'm from, there ain't nothing but chocolate. The more chocolate you get in that ice cream is the better. I like chocolate, I like double chocolate, I like double chocolate fudge, I like with the brownie, the chocolate chips, anything, chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. But there are weirdos out there who like things like French vanilla and things like mocha, almond, whatnot, okay? And then uh, the one I've been picking all is the butter pecan, okay? So there's those people out there and we think they're nuts, okay? We think they should be admitted. We think that they shouldn't exist on planet Earth with the rest of us, but somehow God programmed in them a desire not for chocolate, but for butter pecan, and for almonds and mochas and things like that. So if we believe there's that much diversity when it comes to ice cream flavor, how about when it comes to our relationship with God? Because in the end, Christianity, Christianity, we have to be careful about this one. Christianity is not a set of rules to follow. Christianity is a person to find. It is not rules to follow, it is a person to find. And if you are not careful, you don't understand what we're talking about right here, you're going to fall in the trap of thinking that my way is the only way. 
The way I pray, everyone has to pray that way. The way I was raised, the way everyone has to be raised. The way that I relate to God is the way everyone has to relate to God, and that simply isn't the truth. That doesn't mean, as some of you may be thinking, okay, good, I don't need to pray at all. That's great, I'm not going to serve. No, we all need to pray, but some people pray in silence. Some people pray writing. Some people in the Bible. Some people, it's okay. Some people in the Bible, like King David, prayed through music. The issue isn't how, the issue is what? We all need to pray, but how we pray is different. Okay, different people in different ways. Okay, we all need to serve, and we all need to be unselfish, not just live for ourselves. But some may serve through Sunday school, some may serve through the poor. We all, we all need to do these same things, but how we do them will be different, okay? Like I can say we all need to eat ice cream, but the flavor we eat, it isn't as important, as long as we are getting our nutrition from our ice cream, okay? Plenty of calcium and dairy in there, probably. Here's our theme verse, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart is another translation would be a sincere heart. Let us draw near as we were designed, as God made us. Let us not try to copy and paste and say, I'm going to draw near the way he draws near or the way she draws near or the way someone told me this is the only way. I will draw near with a true heart as God designed me according to what he programmed inside me. Because our goal is not the way, our goal is the person. Okay, and we're reminded of this every time that we pray in the divine liturgy, when we say that Christ came to this earth, he was incarnate and taught us the ways of salvation, not the way. Okay, there's only one way to God, which is Christ himself. He's the only way. But there are many ways to Christ, and that's what we're talking about here, all right? The different ways to the way. So far, we've talked about four different ways. Okay, the, for each week we're talking about two different ways. We talked about the naturalist and the sensate the first week. And that was basically the people who discover God through exterior things, through nature, okay, through a river, through a mountain, through a walk in the park. Okay, people, these are the people, but you tell them study the Bible in a room, they're like, ah, if I can get, just get outside, okay, I can learn a lot more about God. And we saw uh, many examples from the Bible as well as from our church history about many of the monks especially said, you keep your books in your classroom, Give me God's classroom, which is nature, and that teach me everything I need to know about God. We saw the sensates. Sensates worship God through their senses, okay, through sight, through sound, through smell. We saw someone like King David was all about worshiping God through sound and through music. And we see some people experience God most likely in that way. Last week, we took a look at the next two, the traditionalists and the ascetic, a.k.a. the boring ones, okay, the ones who discover God through structure, the ones who like ritual, who like routine, who like discipline, who like fasting. Some of us say, well, those things, we can never discover God through those ways. But we saw that all of us need a little bit of discipline, and a little bit of structure. Even if it's not like our favorite flavor in the whole wide world, we saw how we all need it. Now, some of you, getting into today's topic, heard me talk about last week and ascetic this and uh, structure this and sensate this. Some of you are sitting there and thinking to yourself, man, is Christianity really this boring? Like, is that what Christianity is? Just sit in your room and pray all day. And just sit there and, and read the Bible all day. And then just, you know, exchange, you know, vegan brownie recipes all day. Okay, that's what Christianity is all about. Like, we Christians, are we supposed to do something in the world? Are we supposed to make the world a better place? Are we supposed to fight the bad guys? Are we supposed to solve world hunger? Are we supposed to get rid of the racism? And the, like, aren't we supposed to do something? Are we supposed to sit there and, 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 and exchange prayer requests all day and fasting brownie recipes? If that's how you feel, this is your week. Because today we're going to talk about the two action flavors of spirituality, which are activist 
and caregiver. If you like that, you're going to like this verse, James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. And all the activists in the room said, amen. And all the caregivers in the room said, amen. Stop sitting there preaching to me. Stop sitting there yapping and talking about prayer meetings all day and all night. Get out there and do something with your life. Get out there and make the world a better place. Well, good news. That's what we're going to talk about today. As we talk about activism, which is loving God through confrontation and then caregiving. Loving God through caring for others. Let's start with activism. The classic activist is the Martin Luther Kings of the world. Loving God through confrontation. Not through confrontation like confronting your, your boss or your someone in the street who's driving too slow in the left lane. That's not confrontation we're talking about. We're talking about confronting the evils in this world. True story. There's a man that I know, and I know him very well, and some of you may know him as well, who is very, he's the classic activist in this world. His passion in life is religious persecution back in his home country in Egypt. And those who suffered, Christians, religious persecution, and especially the poor. He grew up in like a poor village in Egypt, okay, where he saw a lot of people have some bad stuff happen to them. Okay, so this person, like this is what drives and what makes him wake up in the morning. And for this person, helping the Christians in Egypt is not an option. It's not an option. It's a requirement. How can you be a Christian and say, I love God and not care about the poor brothers, especially those who are poor, because they're Christian, persecuted because they're Christian? He believes that you must help them all. It is not an option. So for most of us, normal people, non-activists would say, yes, we should help. And what does that mean? We should send money. We should, you know, maybe collect, you know, canned goods, clothing, blankets, prayer meetings, whatever. But for this person, that's not how you help. That's 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 the that's the elementary school kind of help. This person opens his home to us. This person does something that you and I would think is crazy. This person made a living by doing this, which is you can sponsor people to come to America. Okay, this is what this is what this is how it works. Okay, when someone okay is in Egypt is applying to America, and they say, well, how are you going to survive? You're just going to be on welfare. So someone from America, a citizen, would say, I sponsor this person, and I say this person will stay with me, and I'll get them up on their feet, and the government can hold me accountable in case they don't make it, hold me accountable, and I will be the one. I'll make sure they don't have on welfare. Most people have done this at most once, maybe twice. This person's done it for hundreds of years, okay? And, but the, the government, I guess, caught on. This person can only do it so many times. So the government set a limit on the number of people that you can sponsor to do this. So what does he do? He, go, he used to go around the church and tell people, you sponsor, and they'll stay with me. You sign the paperwork, and they'll stay at my house. And this person, hundreds, I, I, want, I want to say thousands, but I don't want to exaggerate. Hundreds and maybe thousands of people have started in this country by living in this person's, in the person's den, in the person's basement, in the person's whatever it may be. This person, this person will walk around church on a regular basis. On a Sunday to Sunday basis, he'd walk around church with a stack of papers in his hand. Okay. Stack of papers. And he would ask you the following question How many people have you sponsored to come to America? Anything less than seven got you a form. <laughs> Not only that, but in order to sponsor someone, the government needs to make sure that you have like a certain level of income. Like you can't say, I'm unemployed and I want to sponsor someone. So a regular conversation with a person would go like this Hi, my name is this. What's your name? How much did you make in 2004? Okay, that is not an uncommon. 
many of you know who this person is. This person is my father-in-law. None other than the one, the only. Okay, yeah, give him a hand. And I'll just tell you this, okay? I'll just tell you this. I didn't know he was going to be here when I said I'm going to talk about this. But if there's one person that this wouldn't affect him, okay, is my father-in-law. I'll tell you this. Well, maybe he has slowed down a bit, okay, as, as you know, life has taken him forward. His heart hasn't changed one bit. So you see him approaching you in church with some papers, you run, okay? But that's the classic activist. The classic activist is, I am here on this earth to do something. That there is this evil in this world that I, I can't sleep at night knowing this evil exists. I have to do everything I can. And even if it seems outrageous to some people, the activist is the one who believes that God put him here on this earth to make a difference in this world. I'll say this. I don't know how many people here are activists. I know many people I've asked, you know, kind of what's your flavor. Very few people raise their hand for activists, and that's fine. But I will say this. I don't think you can actually be Christian without being an activist to a certain degree. It may not be your best flavor. It may not be your highest. It may not be your most natural. But you cannot say that I am a follower of Christ, and I don't care about the evil in the world around me. Because the one who we follow cared very much about the evil in the world around us. The first thing that Jesus said, his first sermon that he preached in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me and now watch activism. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What he's saying is, I didn't just come here to pray and just to do Bible studies, I came to make the world a better place, to do something in this world. I came on a mission. And that's why I'm saying you can't be Christian without a little bit of activism, because being Christian without activists, like the idea in my head right now, church and Christian should be more like army and soldier, and less like country club and golfer. Church is more a, a army than it is a country club, and Christians are more soldiers than they are golfers just coming to have coffee together and drink tea together and share crumpets together on a Sunday morning. How can I follow Jesus and say he's the most important thing to me, and then he says, this is important to me, and I say, I don't care? Can't be done. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, same passage that we looked at earlier that when it said that faith and works. James expands on it. He says, what is a profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Basically saying, what is a profit if someone prays all day but does nothing about it? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? I'm going to add my own emphasis on this. I don't know how, this is how James wrote, but this is how I would say it if I was James. If one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled. But you do not give them things to the body. What does it profit? You preach him a nice sermon. Here you go. God bless you. And the man takes the bread and hits you back on the head with it. Okay? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Christianity has always had two legs. Always had two legs, come and go. Those are the two legs. Come and follow, go and serve. Come and follow, go and preach. Go and love, go and change the world. Come and receive the light, go and share the light. It's always been. And if you're trying to do Christianity with one leg without the other, you can only get so far until you decide to move that other leg. And that's how many of us have found our, our spiritual lives maybe stagnated. One author wrote the following. He said, hell will be full of people who thought very highly of the Sermon on the Mount, but did not obey it. Hell will be 
full of people who thought very highly of the Sermon on the Mount, but did not obey it. You must do more than that. You must obey it and take action. So how are we going to take action? I'm not Martin Luther King. I'm not your father-in-law. I'm not someone who's going to change the world. Well, those are all ways that you can be activists. But I want to say is that you can be activists in very small ways. It doesn't need to be high profile. A mom who marches for life against abortion is an activist. He's worshiping God. In some ways, she's trying to make the world a better place. A student, a high school kid, who doesn't know his left hand from his right hand, but knows that drunk driving is bad, and joins the Students Against Drunk Driving Association, and just contributes in their meetings, is, in a way, doing something. My sister-in-law, who many of you know, and she sends thousands of emails and blog posts about healthy eating this and natural food this and don't go this and all that stuff. That's her form of activism. I know some of you thinking, you got a feisty family. I know, my family's feisty, okay? We didn't even get to the election stuff, okay? We got that stuff. Okay? The point is this. An activist feels passion about a cause in this world. And here's the most important part. You may not care about their cause. But that's okay, because that's their cause. And they may not care about your cause, but that's okay. Because we are not all have to have the same cause. Like Martin Luther King fought for racial equality, and good for him. Okay, and some people need to do that. But some people need to fight for the homeless. Some people need to fight against drunk driving. Some people need to fight against, you know, illegal drugs. Some people need to fight, you know, the refugees. So if we all help them, who's going to help them? Okay, so let's all help them, but who's going to help them? God put inside of us, like fighting against cancer is not taking away from fighting against AIDS. And fighting against... A one disease not taken from the other. So there are so many diseases in this world. God put inside each one of us a certain passion. And while I wouldn't want everyone to be like my sister-in-law or my father-in-law to be like you to be like me, I'm certainly glad that there's some of them in this world. Well, I wouldn't want everyone to fight for the same thing because it might be difficult to come to church on Sunday. But I'm sure glad some people do fight for those things. And I think you are as well. Let's go through some activists in the Bible. Two big ones, okay, many of them, but the two big ones are two of the biggest names in the Bible, are classic activists, Moses and Elijah. Let's start with Moses. Moses, the scripture tells us in Acts chapter 7, okay, St. Stephen is preaching in Acts 7, but he's talking about Moses, okay? And he says, now when he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Came into his heart to visit them. Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And Moses, before God, had, had commissioned him at the burning bush and all the ten plagues and all that stuff. Moses, when he was 40 years old, said, enough is enough. I can't take this no more, and i got to do something about it. And he had a passion, but he was a little bit misguided. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. This actually is one of the classic flaws of an activist. Activists sometimes get so passionate and so excited and so enthusiastic about their thing that they sometimes get ahead of God. That's what Moses did. God had a plan for Moses to make a change, but Moses went out there and said, I got to take matters in my own hands. And that's why if you're an activist, wisdom and patience, okay, will always be a friend of yours. Eventually, God saw that Moses understood this, so God came to him 40 years later, Exodus 5, verse 9. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, says God, and I have also seen the oppression from which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If you're an activist, you understand this highlighted phrase because you feel that God has sent you. 
you feel that God has sent you. And that's why Moses was. And Moses stood up to Pharaoh. And when he stood up to Pharaoh, actually, Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I will not let them go. I'll make their life more miserable. And all the people said, Moses, we hate your gut. And Moses didn't stop. Moses kept going because God told me that he's going to deliver them through me. Like God put this passion in my heart. There's a verse that Jesus said when he was talking to the Samaritan woman. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's an activist. I can't do nothing else but fight against Pharaoh because that's God said, I will send you. That's how an activist feels. This is my purpose, why I'm in this world. Let's turn to Elijah. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah, one of the biggest prophets. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Elijah came to the king of Israel, and he said to him, Because you are evil, it's not written explicitly this way, but the king of Israel was doing wicked things and worshiping idols and taking the country away from God. So what, what Elijah said to him is, From this moment on, there will be a drought in this country. Now you say, Where's the act? Like, what's the big deal then? No, this was a big deal. Because the kings in the Old Testament, the prophet would come to him, and they didn't understand that the prophets were saying what God wanted them to say. They thought it was kind of the opposite, chicken and the egg thing. They thought it was that God was doing what the prophets were saying. So that's why they would say, bring me a prophet who's going to prophesy good things to me. Like, you prophesied bad, so get rid of you. We kill you as a prophet. You prophesied bad, kill you. You said good news. You said there's going to be prosperity. Okay, you're the prophet. That's how they understood it. So Elijah coming and saying, you king, you're evil. That's why there are many false prophets in the Old Testament. Because that's how they kept their job, by just preaching good things. Okay? Just telling the king, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be great. He let them live. Elijah came and said, things are not going to be great. And it's because you're a miserable person. And because you're evil, God is going to stick it to you and stick it to all these people. Elijah took his life in his hands. Another time, another episode, even more activist. Later on in the next chapter, Elijah wants to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. It's kind of like a battle of the bands kind of a thing between his God and the bad guy God. So Elijah says to the king and to all the people, I will stand on top of this mountain called Mount Carmel, and I will stand over here, and I want you to bring to me all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, okay, two false gods, and there was 850 of them. And he said, you bring those 850 of them, I will stand here on this side, and I will take them down. And he confronts them and he challenges them. It says right here, if I have not, oh yeah, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, have followed the Baal. This is what he's saying to Ahab. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And he calls them up on top of this mountain. And this is what he does. This is great stuff. They should make a movie out of this. He says, let's each build an altar. I build an altar, you build an altar. Let's each get a sacrifice cow or bull or whatever it may be. I cut mine on the altar, you put yours on your altar. You pray to God and see if your God answers your prayer and consumes it with fire. And I will do the same thing. So they do their thing. Of course, no God answers. Elijah's like talking trash to them. Elijah's like, no, no, no. Uh, talk a little louder. Maybe he couldn't hear you. So they talk a little louder and they like do all kinds of crazy stuff. Elijah's like, no, I, I actually think I think he went to the bathroom. Try again. I'm sure he's back now. Elijah's talking trash to them. He's one on 850 and he's talking trash to them. And they couldn't do anything. So Elijah says, y'all, work this. And Elijah's about to do his thing. He's about to call on God. Before he does that, he says, you know what? This is too easy for my God. My God, this is too easy. Bring me a bucket of water. And he pours water on the altar. He says, I'm about to call fire. No, bring me another bucket of water. And he put three, but one more bucket of water. And he's walking around saying, one more bucket of water. He 
praise to God. Fire comes down from heaven. The next verse says, Elijah said to them, after fire consumed his sacrifice, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Booyah. Mic drop. That's an activist. An activist says, 850 against one? I like my odds. Because an activist isn't afraid. As long as he has good on his side and evil on the other side, an activist will run his head through a brick wall for the sake of what he feels God has asked him to do on this earth. Now, some of you, if you hear that story and you're like, yeah, let's go fight someone. Let's go confront somebody. Someone's getting a mouthful by the end of today. That's you. You're an activist probably, but slow down. Because let me warn you of this one thing. If you're an activist, how you confront is as important as what you confront. How you confront is as important as what you confront. I said a minute ago, all Christians are an activist to a degree. But not all activism is Christian. Said another way, the end does not justify the means. And never will you get anyone to tell you that the end justifies the means. Meaning what? Meaning you're against abortion. You want to go destroy a Planned Parenthood office building. The end does not justify the means. How you can support as well. You say, I hate this government. This government steals from the poor, helps the rich, Morally, I hate everything they do, so I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I'll tell you no. You may be right in your cause, you, whatever you're fighting for, but that is not the right way to fight. The end is not justified to need. It is never okay to lie, no matter how much that lie would help someone in need. We followed Christ, and Christ never lied, Christ never stole, Christ never destroyed any buildings of the bad guys. So how you confront is just as important as what you confront. And that is a critical lesson for all activists or wannabe activists to keep in mind. A famous Christian author called Francis Schaeffer says this. He says, there's only one kind of man who can fight the Lord's battles in anywhere near a proper way, and that is the man who by nature is unbelligerent. The belligerent man tends to it because he is belligerent. Meaning, some people fight because they like to fight. That's not what Christ was. At least it looks that way. We do it not because we, lo I love this quote, we do it not because we love the smell of the blood, the smell of the arena, and the smell of the bullfight, but because we must for God's sake. There's people who like to protest. They have fun protesting. They like the megaphone. They like the attention. There's people who like to appear on the front page of the newspaper as the crusader for what is good. There's people who like the smell of the arena. But that's not activism. That's not worshiping God. What I'm talking about is the kind of worshiping God where we feel like, I hate to confront. Actually, it's my least favorite thing, but I have no choice. Imagine a police officer, someone in, in an academy. Say, hey, why do you want to be a police officer? Say, because I've always wanted to have a gun. That's not the way a police officer. As a police officer, your gun is your last resort. It's the last you hate to use. And that's the way the good police officers are. They hate to use it. And they say, this is just for protection when all, all, all the means fail. As a Christian, we don't protest because we want to protest. We don't fight because we want to fight. We don't stampede because we want to stampede. We feel that God has given us no other choice. And that's why we do it. So this week, okay, when it comes to activism, your challenge for this week. Every week we've been doing like a challenge to see 
if we like this flavor of ice cream? You never know. Okay, so we are all going to try to do this activism. But I try to think about it. So how are we going to do this? Like we're all going to go find a cause and like, so we're not actually going to do anything here. What I'm going to challenge each person to do, okay, these challenges on the back of your handout, on the yellow part. Each one of us, for the activist, is going to sit down and spend some time with a piece of paper, a journal, and, and meditate and ask, not meditate, meditate is the wrong word. Ask ourselves, what is it that makes our blood boil? I'm convinced that if you have the Spirit of God inside you, that there is something that makes your blood boil, that there is an evil in this world that makes you, some people, like I said, it could be children, some could be abortion, some could be drunk driving, some could be refugees, some could be the homeless, like whatever it may be. I'm not trying to tell you what you have to be your thing, but there has, there's enough evil in this world that there's room for every one of our hearts. Each one of us needs to figure out what it is that causes our blood to boil. Do you want to know what my blood boil thing is? My blood boil thing is? Okay, I'm not an activist by any means, but like I said, we all got a little bit in us. My blood boil thing is exactly what this church is all about. Ancient faith in the modern world. I'll tell you what I, what I, what I hate. And I'm a priest, so that's why I need to move. I hate people representing God as if he is the most miserable person on the planet. And the only way that you have a relationship with God, you have to be miserable. You used to like sports, can't like sports if you love God. You used to listen to music, no, no, no music. No, 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 shout not music in this place. I hate people representing God as irrelevant to my daily life. That's why I'm going to tell you a really stupid passion. Like, this is my passion. This is really stupid. This is the dumbest passion in the whole wide world, but it's my passion. And you're going to say, this is dumb. And I'm telling you, it's dumb. I think yours is dumb. That's fine. Here's my passion. One time God gave this to me. My goal in life, I'm going to write this on my tombstone, okay, one day. I'm going to write this on my tombstone. God and fun. That's my mission in life. Is to show you that you do not need to sacrifice one for the other. Because I, like many of you here, okay, were raised, but you had to choose. You can have God or fun, but you can't have both. So I, for many years, chose fun. And I thought I couldn't have God. And then when I came to God, I said, okay, I got to give up the fun. Then I realized, you know what? Don't tell nobody. Don't tell the miserable people. God is the most fun person in the world. God is the most fun person, and if you don't know that, then you're a miserable person. Don't blame God. The goal isn't that everybody cares about everything, but the goal is that everybody cares about something. And if everyone pursues what God put, the passion God put inside them, we can really make a difference in this world. And each one of us is doing what we're passionate about. That's the activist. Okay? Let's turn our attention now to the caregivers. The caregivers. We love the caregivers. Caregivers, and no one who doesn't love to have a caregiver around them. I'm the luckiest person in the world. I was raised by a caregiver as a mom, and I married a caregiver as a mom. Ain't no one luckier in the whole wide world than me. Because I'm the most uncaregiver person in the world. But this week, as many of you know, I was thrust into a situation where you don't have a choice. Okay, my dad was in the hospital this past week, and Last week I was telling you about how we have to increase our spiritual repertoire. The goal of this series is not to decrease, but to increase. And this past week really stretched me in a lot of ways because I'm not a natural caregiver. It's not my nature. I'm the most, actually, if you want to know, maybe, hopefully not too many nods in this one, I'm the worst caregiver in the world. You know why I discovered? Because I'm overly practical and rational. Sometimes my wife and I will have this discussion. She'll say, so-and-so is sad. It's usually a girl. This girl is sad. And I say, why this girl is sad? Because she broke up with her boyfriend. 
And I said, but I thought the boyfriend was bad news. She said he was. That's why she's sad. Because she broke up. Okay, well, why don't she go back with him? Because he's back. You can be sad, or you can, but you can't be sad. It's your choice. I don't get it. If you're nodding your head, you are not a caregiver as well. But like me, it doesn't mean that you are exempt. Because even though you may not be a caregiver, just like I said with activists, we are all called to give care at different times of our life and to stretch ourselves in an area that may not be natural for us. You could say that the word Christian and caregiver are actually synonymous. Because no one was more of a caregiver than Jesus Christ himself. And of course, Jesus was all of the different flavors. Because Jesus was a true human being, a true man in the fullest sense. But really, with this caregiver one, you can't help but see it. Jesus cared for the poor when others didn't care for them. Jesus cared for the marginalized when people wanted to ignore them. Jesus even cared. I'll show you how much of a caregiver. Caregivers will appreciate this. Jesus didn't just care when people were poor or when they were homeless or when they were outcast. He even cared when people were simply hungry. Story, Matthew chapter 14. It says, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. Okay, when Jesus heard it, you have to understand what's the it. Because when Jesus heard it, that's a key part of this story. What is the it? The beginning of the chapter tells us that that's the chapter where John the Baptist got beheaded. And Jesus just heard that John the Baptist, his cousin, his close friend, his compadre in the ministry, okay, he was the forerunner, had gotten beheaded. So clearly, okay, Jesus was God, but he's also man. So Jesus needed a moment to himself is what this is saying. When Jesus heard it, I need to be by myself. And we all understand that there's certain times we just need to be alone. But what happens? But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now you have a dilemma. I understand this dilemma because I'm a, like an introverted kind of to myself person who's oftentimes in a situation you have to be in front of people. And many times I heard it, I won't be by myself. But there's people that are in need. What does a caregiver do? John Matthew 14, 14. Jesus went out. He saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. He was moved with compassion for them. We'd all understood if Jesus would have said, give me a minute. We'd all understood if he said, come back tomorrow. We'd all understood if he said, you know what? Just, just manna from heaven. Just manna. We'd understood. But caregiver moved with compassion. Put himself second. Care needed here. Care needed here. Here second. Here first. That's what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? He healed their sick. Not only he healed their sick, he preached them about the kingdom. Not only preached them about the kingdom, not only listened to their stories, not only carried their crying babies, he also joked and laughed with them. You say, where does it say the Bible say that he joked and laughed? Well, what the scripture tells us is they stuck with him all day, from the morning until the late afternoon. If I didn't put a joke or two in this sermon, you'd be out. Okay? The fact that they stuck around to the end means Jesus was entertaining them as well. He was giving them a little bit of love and, and showing them, like, being personable with them, which is not easy to do when you are having a tough time on the inside. Eventually, this is a story. You all know the story. He feeds the multitudes. Okay, they come to him and say, there's 5,000 people here, plus, men, plus women and children. We only have five loaves and two fish. The disciples say, send them away so they can go eat. Okay? That's called hypocritical caregiving. That's saying, I want to eat. Send them away. We care about them eating, but that's really, I want to eat. Jesus said, no, no, no. 
caregiving means that we're going to feed them before we feed ourselves. And then Jesus feed them with the five loaves and two fish. And as soon as the story finishes, as soon as he finishes feeding them, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he set the multitudes away. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. I bring this to highlight for you that Jesus as a caregiver was not what he wanted to do at the moment. Caregiver is not something that we choose to do whenever we want to do. It's sometimes that we are thrust in a situation where we as Christians, we have no choice. If our brother's in need, we help. If our sister's in need, we help. If there's a sick person, we help. If there's someone who's in need, we help because we as Christians, we follow Christ. We are all called to be caregivers to a certain degree, whether or not it's our natural state or not our natural state. <clears throat> the classic non-biblical caregiver that I put up before is Mother Teresa. Okay, she's your, 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 your gold standard of caregivers after Christ. And let me show you how a caregiver thinks. Again, this is why I can never be a caregiver. Because you have to be a little bit illogical. Maybe not illogical. Unpractical. Unpractical. Why? I'm too logical and too practical to be the one. Mother Teresa dedicated her life to doing what? Serving what kind of people? Poorest of the poor, but not just the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor were dying. The dying. Now I say, and I say this with all respect, and I don't mean it to be as insensitive. It's going to come across very insensitive. My wife is holding her breath. Okay. There's much more efficient uses of your time than helping someone who's going to die tomorrow anyway. I know, that's horrible. I know. That's the worst thing in the world. I know. But that's why I'm not a caregiver. Because a non-caregiver thinks, why not use those resources for someone who will live many years? More efficient. That's not how a caregiver thinks. A caregiver looks past the efficiency and, and, and the practicality and sees a person in the image of God who is in need. A person created in the image of God in front of me. Not... A boy or a girl, a man or a woman, a rich or a poor, a slave or a free. A caregiver does not see that. A caregiver sees Christ himself in front of me and in need. So I have no choice. <clears throat> and for caregivers, this is a way to worship God. You want a short video clip of a caregiver explain to you what I can only talk about from a third person perspective. This person can talk about Hey y'all, I'm Sarah Gerges and my flavor is caregiver. So what that means is I connect to God through um, caring, um, caring for others and serving others. Um, it's no matter what the capacity is, I love to serve others and um, I really feel like God gave every person a story and I feel like that's just how I get to see God through those people is through their stories. Um, those of you that know me know that I can't sit still and I love to help in any way, shape or form. Um, what makes my day is when somebody sends me a text message and says, hey, you want to meet up for coffee? I really need to talk. Um, that really gets me excited because I know that through sharing that person's story and sharing life together is really where I'll be able to see God and really meet God through them and connect to God through them. Um, it's really clear that my husband and I do not have the same flavor because whenever I come to share with him a story or an experience or a service that I did, and I'm so excited, as much as he tries to tries really hard to kind of like, you know, seem engaged and sounds interesting and whatnot, the look on his face says, okay, cool, but I don't get it. <laughs> um, 
but for me, honestly, it doesn't matter the capacity, whether it's a lending, um, lending hand or an, just an ear to listen or anything like that. I really find that I connect through God because I feel like um, through connecting to these people and serving these people, I really will be able to see God's amazing grace and love and mercy through each person that I serve and through each person's story. So my flavor is definitely a caregiver. So you see, a classic caregiver is not just, it was a duty in front of me, but a connection to God. And what I want to challenge you, we're going to get to the, the homework assignment in a little bit, that we're going to try to find a caregiving opportunity. But not just a caregiving opportunity to just do a task, but to connect with God through that task. Okay? And hopefully we'll discover something. Let's go some verses from the Bible, go through these quickly, because you all heard these verses before. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We all, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How can you be a Christian and not care about someone in front of you in need? St. Paul, Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. One more, James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I want to show you one more verse, but I want to set this verse up. Those three verses I just showed you talked about you should because it's the right thing to do. You have love of God. You have to care for others. I want to show you one from the negative perspective. What does it mean if you don't care about the needs of others and you don't care about your brother and sister who needs a, a helping hand or a listening ear? We're going to see a verse from Ezekiel chapter 16, okay? And it's going to talk about the city of Sodom. But before I show you the verse... I tell you Sodom, okay, like of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you automatically know Sodom in the Bible represents the worst, most wicked people on the planet. This was a city that God destroyed with fire and brimstone from heaven. Sodom equals bad news. We don't want to be Sodom. There's a lot of places you want to be, you don't want to be Sodom. What is it that caused God to be so upset at Sodom? I know a lot of times we think it's certain moral failures, which those were there for sure, but Ezekiel points on something that you may not have realized was the crime of Sodom. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Sodom, bad news, equals arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. We talk about the poor and the needy. Is there a person here who doesn't struggle with pride and a little bit of arrogance to some degree? We all got a little bit of pride. So between arrogance, they're arrogant, we all got a little bit of arrogance. Overfed speaks for itself. No one here is dying of hunger. That means the only distinction between me and Sodom that I got in my favor is whether or not I'm concerned for the poor and the needy. And if I get strike three on concern for the poor and the needy, you put me in the same category as you put Sodom in. And that's not a category I want to be. Christianity isn't about what you don't do. Christianity is about what you do do. And I one time said this several years back without realizing that I made it funny. Okay? Because I said the word do-do. Okay? I didn't mean it to be a funny way. I meant it to be an honest way. I don't know how to get the point across any clearer. But you can do what you want with it. Christianity is all about do-do. 
Christianity is not about what you don't do. It's like marriage. We take it and think about it in marriage. My goal, I got married in, in 2001, May 28, 2001. And I said, Marianne, I love you. And for the rest of my life, my goal in life is this. I won't cheat on you. I won't throw you out of the house. I won't steal your 401k. And if I get to the end of my life and I accomplish those three things, would I say I'm a good husband? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Because the goal of marriage is not to not steal from your wife. The goal of marriage is not to not cheat on your wife. The goal is to love your wife. And we've done the same thing in Christianity. We think that the goal of Christianity is to avoid the big, the top ten sins. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, and then sit back and watch TV for the rest of the day. I didn't kill nobody, I didn't steal from nobody, I didn't adultery nobody, I'm okay. Christianity is not about what you don't do. Christianity is about what you do do. We call this sins of omission and sins of commission. You may have heard these words before. Sins of commission is bad things that we do. Lie, cheat, steal. And usually 99% of our confession is focused on the bad things that we do. And that's bad. But equally as bad is the good things that we don't do. The brother that I saw in the need that I neglected and I walked by and I said, that's not my problem. That's a sin just as much as hitting him on the head would have been a sin. When God brings someone in front of me who just needs a hug, who just needs someone to, to, to smile and listen to them, and I say, I'm busy, that sin of omission is equally as bad as if I had done, if I had hit them in the face. And some we say, but no, I'm busy. I need to go read the Bible. I need to go pray. And that's where the caregivers say, no, you don't. Enough praying. You need to show some love. You need to take some of that prayer and stop praying for everybody in the whole wide world and do something with them prayers and give somebody a hug when they need a hug. And you don't believe me? Go read the story of Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan. About two priests, a priest and a Levite, who were so busy doing the little spiritual church thing. Go busy preaching. Go busy teaching sermons and Bible studies. that they walked by a guy in need. And God said, this is not what it means to love. Jesus showed us that Christianity is not about negative theology, but positive theology. And what I mean by that is this, he, or, or morality, not theology. It's not negative morality, but positive morality. He did not say, don't do unto others as you don't want them to do to you. That's not what he said. He said, do to them what you want them to do to you. He said, be proactive. Don't just avoid doing what you want avoided done to you. Go be proactive and go do to others what you want them to do to you. James says it this way, 4.17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So this week, my brothers and sisters, we are going to think about the activism, okay, and try to understand what our passion is, okay, and ask ourselves questions. But for caregiving, we're going to do something about it. And the challenge for you is this week, we're going to design a caregiving opportunity. You are, not me. You're going to design a caregiving opportunity. That means you go visit someone who's sick, and that means you go help a neighbor with their car is broken, go help them fix it. It means you go mow the lawn of someone who you know is elderly. That means that you go uh, uh, babysit some kids who you know, who, or you do a, a, a something or other. Okay, do something. Okay, this week we will design an opportunity to try to be the hands of Jesus. And like Sarah told us in the video, we will not just say like grin and bear. We will say, God, let me experience you and worship you through this. Let this not just to be something that I do and just get it out of the way. I'm telling you, when I was in the hospital this past week, again, I'm not a caregiver, but I, it's when I came and I said, you know what? I'm talking about caregiving this week, and I'm going to tell the people to do it, so I might as well do it myself. And I said, God, let me worship you through this week. And I'm telling you, when you do that, 
God always answers that prayer. And you will be there, you'll be doing something, and God will design a divine appointment. Okay, and some of the people that I met in the hospital this past week really, really, really touched my life in some ways, and I connected with God through that. And again, it's not by natural way of connecting with God, but you'll be surprised what you'll discover when you give God a chance. <clears throat> Real quick, let's go through with each week, we're going through the pitfalls of each of the three. Of, of each of the, the, the different flavors. Because okay, there's a danger of going overboard on any one of these. And these apply to both activists and caregivers. We'll go through them kind of quickly. Sometimes activists and caregivers are in danger of judging others. Judging others. Being elitists. Okay, and thinking that you pathetic Christian you. How dare you not care about what I care about. How could you? It's so clear that everyone needs to do this. Everyone needs to help the homeless. Everyone needs to help the poor. Everyone needs to fight for the rights of the children. Everyone needs to. And it is, it is a tendency and a danger to judge someone else because their passion isn't like my passion. Can anyone think of someone in the Bible who did exactly that, who had a certain passion, and there was someone next to her who didn't have that same passion, and she said, Jesus, she's not a good Christian because she's not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And Jesus said, leave her alone, lady. Can you think of who that is? Mary and Martha, Luke 10, verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's so spiritual. She's just Bible study and then just praying. Don't you care that she's not doing anything? She's just sitting there. Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not shall, which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus didn't rebuke her and say, Martha, be like Mary. But he also said, Martha, don't make Mary be like you. You're not like her. She's not like you. You worship as, as God put inside you, and you let Mary worship as God put inside her. We don't have the same passions, and there's a danger when we are very passionate about something, a cause, that we think anyone who doesn't share our same passion must be bad, and we judge them. I remember when we were, um, <clears throat> when we were going on mission trips. Okay, we'd go on mission trips. Certain people, okay, would always be like a group that would go out and a group that would stay and pray. Okay, so there was always the, the tendency, okay, that which is, some people would say, you know what, I'm just going to stay and pray. I'm going to stay and pray. I'll be the prayer team, okay? And some people were doing that sincere. Some people were doing it lazy, okay? They just want to go out, okay? But there was a, a tendency of some of the, the, the doers, say those lazy bums just sitting there and praying all day, tell them to get up there and roll their sleeves up. What I want to say is God gave them the gift of prayer, and God gave you the gift of preaching, so I mean, can't we all just get along kind of? Number two, judging others, number one. Number two, serving ourselves. Be careful here, caregivers and activists. Sometimes we serve others, but we're really serving ourselves. Sometimes we feel bad about ourselves. We struggle with self-esteem. We don't feel good about where we are, what, whatever, for whatever reason. I don't want to try to be a psychologist right here. But we validate our existence by serving others. It is great to serve others. It is great to fight for that cause, but that is not who you are. That is not your identity. And you need to be able to find your identity in Christ, not in your service. There might be a temptation, for example, for some of us, that we would skip church and say, well, I'm busy serving. I'm busy. I'm, I'm preparing food to go and serve the homeless after church. So we skip a church service. We say, I'm busy serving. There'd be a temptation, maybe, to cut corners on some morality issues. But for a greater good, a greater cause. And, and we're fighting against evil right here. There may be a tendency for some caregivers and activists to neglect their own home. And I'll tell you the classic 
priest or pastor line. I take care of God's kids, and God will take care of my kids. Never understood. Never understood. Why would I trust God to take care of my kids? Why don't I trust him to take care of his own kids? Like, why would I say, God, I'll take care of the church, and you take care of the family? Why do, well, I think God would say, well, why don't you do the family, and I got the church? I think sometimes we say that because we feel good about it. And we are actually serving ourselves in saying it. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he has, desert, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You can't get any more blunt than that. If anyone is out there serving, 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 serving to the neglect of his own home, and that person, according to St. Paul, is not serving God, but is really serving himself. Okay? Number three judging others, serving ourselves, and finally burning out. And I won't go through this just for the sake of time, but I brought you examples earlier from Moses and Elijah. Both of them, strong activists, did great things, but both of them experienced times where they felt depleted, and they felt isolated, and they felt alone, and they felt like even God himself is not helping us. Like, I'm doing this for you, God, and God, you are not helping me. And I'm Superman complex, and God, how come you don't see how much, and even you, and that, that complex, okay, is a is a... Temptation for activists and caregivers. And the antidote for that is rest and replenishment. Now, realizing that we work for God, not God works for us. That's activist and care. I am not primarily either one of those two. Those are not my primary flavors. We'll get to my primary flavor in two weeks. Mine is the last one, which is the best one. But what I will say this, it is hard for me to see any Christian without any form of activism and any form of caregiving in their life hard for me to see that that person, no matter how much they read the Bible, no matter how much they pray, no matter how much they fast, no matter how much, it's hard for me to see that a true follower of Jesus Christ would have no care for the world around them, be it the evil in the world, the, the, the works of the evil one, or be it those in need. Actually, let me ask you this question. Can you imagine, can you imagine Christ seeing someone poor and not caring? Can you imagine Christ seeing someone being abused and not caring? Can you imagine Christ seeing someone being discriminated against and not caring? Can you imagine the sight? I tell you, yes. You can imagine the sight. It happens every day. Every day that we, the body of Christ, don't care, it's that Christ himself is not caring, because we are the body of Christ. The great saint, St. Teresa of Avila, lived in the 1500s, said this, Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands but yours, no feet but yours. This is what we believe the church is. We are the feet, the hands, the body of Christ. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. Can you imagine Christ not caring about someone being discriminated against? Yes. Every time you don't care, you are Christ to that person. So that person sees Christ not caring. Every time the church doesn't care about the evil in the world, then the people see Christ not caring about the evil in the world. You say, I can't imagine Christ not caring. And I tell you, it happens every day. And we need to put an end to it because it can't be. I don't care what your spiritual flavor is. Someone in need in front of you, we roll up our sleeves and we do it. And in addition to being the hands and feet of Christ, you may discover a flavor of ice cream that you never knew you liked before. You may discover a new and deeper and richer way to connect with God. You look at someone like Mother Teresa and the way she spoke about it. You'd have had to chop her head off to take her away from those poor people because in the poor people, she found Christ. She found Christ in you would have to, to, to pull her away, 
kicking and screaming, and we'd say, what are you? You'd have to, because that's how she found Christ. You may discover a deeper way to connect with God. Because as great as it is, as great as it is to believe in Jesus and his goodness, it is better to be Jesus and his goodness to those around us. Homework assignment. Two things on the back of your hand. We'll answer the question, what problem do you see in the world that you wish something could be done about? Okay, what makes your blood boil? And then you're going to ask, answer these questions, okay, and you're going to write it down. Okay, you're going to spend some good time trying to figure it out. And you're going to figure out, maybe is there one small thing I could do about it? Okay, doesn't need to be big Martin Luther King kind of things. could be very small things in your neighborhood, in your school, in your work, whatever it may be. And number two, we'll design one caregiving opportunity. We will this week focus on not just being filled with light, but how we can then shine that light to the world around us as the body of Christ is in the Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and God, amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a chance to be your hands and your feet in the church. Lord, we pray that we would never be so cold and callous and selfish and like self-absorbed that we don't see the evil in this world and the need in this world. Never let us to be like the, the, the guys in the Good Samaritan story, just kind of living in our own little bubble. Pray, Lord, you would reveal to each person what passion you put inside them, what it is that like that makes their blood boil in like a heavenly, spiritual, godly kind of a way. And that you'd reveal to us what we can do about it. Pray you'd also help us to worship you through caregiving this week as well. And find, help us to find an opportunity, Lord, to connect with you serving your people. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all of your saints. Here's Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.